The uh, Zenith Drilling Company prided itself on being the best drill bit producing company in the world, drill bit producing company. Uh, they went through a time where they uh, had lost some market share, the board hired a new CEO, they uh, had a, a, a vision meeting over several days with their top leadership and uh, the intention was to clarify their vision and um, finally at the end of those couple of days, many of us have sat in a lot of meetings like that, they, they decided that they, they, their vision was not just to make uh, uh, great drill bits, but to make the best drill bits in the world. Now this is a company, we're talking about drills, we're not talking about the ones the dentists use, we're talking about the kind of drills that bore through mountains that, that allow trains to go through mountains or underground. They decided they wanted to make the best drill bits in the world and um, the, the new CEO stopped them and said, that's not really uh, our vision. Our vision is to make the best holes in the world. Now, it's a nuance, but it's actually quite a brilliant thought. The idea is you can't build something unless you have a vision of what it is that you're actually trying to do. You start with vision, and then you build everything in your life or your organization or your family. You build everything to do the thing that you feel like you've actually been called to do. There's this great passage most of us are familiar with uh, in Proverbs that says in the King James Version, without a vision, the people perish. Without a vision, the people perish. Most uh, more recent and actually better translations will translate it something like this. Without a revelation, uh, people cast off restraint, meaning if, if you don't have a, a, a revelation that allows you to see the future, people will not get engaged in whatever it is that you're calling them to do. Revelation here means uh, a, 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 a mental picture of the future, and, it, and, in, and in this case, it's a divine revelation. It's a sense of what God has made your life to be about, a sense of what God is calling you to do. I, I love the way that Eugene Peterson translated it in the message. Uh, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. So you have to see what God's calling you to. You have to get a picture of that. You have to have a vision of that before you can then do the things you need to do to actualize that vision. Today, I want to teach about how we can receive insight about our futures and how that when we do, we must go to work to actualize vision. And then I want to talk about how that uh, we don't have to do this alone, but that in fact, God will work with us in accomplishing what he's shown us about our future and how that we can work with each other to support each other in actualizing vision as well. The way I want to organize my thoughts today are, is like this. I want to talk about four no's to actualize vision, by which I mean here are four things that I think we need to know to actualize vision. The first 
Uh, just to reframe some of what we've talked about the last couple of weeks and to add a little bit, hopefully, that will be helpful, know that you can receive insight about your future. Know that you can. You can. All of us should expect to be able to have insight about our futures, the kind of insight that allows us to build our lives to achieve it. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the possibilities of foresight. Foresight is insight about the future. Foresight is vision. And, and that though there are disciplines that can aid us in developing foresight, I'm encouraging us to cultivate our relationship with God in such a way that allows him to give us divine foresight or insight about our future, revelation. This allows us to have vision based on what God, who sees everything, sees for our future. Our focus passage has been and is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. We've talked a lot about the context for this passage. Over the last couple of weeks, we will a little bit more today. But in brief, here's what Paul wrote to the people in the church in Corinth. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So God has prepared things for us that are so marvelous that they can't be seen with human eyes, heard with human ears, or conceived with a human mind, but they can be seen, heard, and conceived. And that happens in the realm of spirit. God will reveal to us the things that he's prepared for our future so that we can see, as the New Testament sometimes calls it, with the eyes of our heart, we can see this picture of the future. And it's only by, if you please, traveling in the mind of God, having this revealed to us by the spirit, that we can have this level of insight about our future. Now, I believe that we can receive spirit-revealed insights, great and small. You know, I think that there are these, when we're in relationship with God in particular, um, I think that there are insights that come to us with some regularity about, about how to deal with a problem or how to get from here to there and, and so on. Uh, I'm particularly focusing in this series on those kind of life-defining insights the, that, that, that as I talked last week, I've only experienced that kind of thing a handful of times in my life, but I've had these, uh, these times when I have had a flash of insight about the things I believe God prepared for me, revelation, the picture of the future that allowed me, that has allowed me to get up every day of my life and work towards actually building my life in a way that gets to that preferred future that I've seen in my mind. That's the kind of thing we're focusing on, although you can take from this whatever is helpful to you. We've also discussed the paradox that insight comes to a person who is focused on a thing, but whose mind is unfocused at the moment of insight. It's paradoxical, but uh, this is what the, the studies and stories about insight tell us. T. Irene Sanders tells us that uh, moments of insight uh, uh, provide common characteristics, including insight 
comes, we're talking about these flashes of, 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 of genius that comes to people in these life-defining ways or, or, or in ways not necessarily that dramatic, but throughout our lives. Insight like this comes after an intense preparation or study of the problem to which it responds. It comes in a, then it comes in a flash while conscious thought is focused elsewhere. So, so the, the common story is that someone who's worked hard on a thing, thought a lot about a thing, and developed some level of mastery about the thing will not necessarily have the, the kind of insight I'm talking about while focused on the thing, but when unfocused, it comes into their unconscious mind, or we might even say in a spiritual sense, into our spirit, and, and so on one hand, uh, we, are, we should be focused on receiving insight about our future, but know that the focus on the insight can create, as we've discussed, a clenched mind that at some point won't allow the insight to come, and, it's, and, and so it's, a, it's an interesting thing. So an example, uh, the great composer Johannes Brahms, uh, uh, he's often called one of the, the three B's of composition along with uh, Beethoven and Bach, this German composer, described how he would get a flash of insight to create a composition. He wrote, straightway the ideas flow in upon me directly from God, and not only do I see distinct themes in my mind's eye, but they are clothed in the right forms, harmonies, and orchestration. Measure by measure, the finished product is revealed to me when I am in those rare, inspired moods, a condition when the conscious mind is in abeyance and the subconscious mind is in control. For it is through the subconscious mind, which is part of omnipotence, that inspiration comes. I hope that this can make sense to you. But that doesn't mean his mind was empty. This is the, this is the, this is the thing that you must understand. He had mastered music and composition. But it wasn't when he was sitting there with a pen in hand thinking, I've got to write a great composition, that the genius came. I'm sure he wrote songs that were fine in that kind of state, but the brilliant things that we, we now talk about 150 or so years or more after Brahms passed away, the genius came when not thinking about the music, the music came. And, and this is why now, now to take that and apply it to our need for insight about our futures, the kind of lives we wanna compose, the kind of divine insight that we hope for doesn't come when we're obsessively folks, focused on our need for insight, but rather when we're focused on our relationship with God. So, I think that we need to get serious about our need to have a, this vision for our future, but to understand that that vision for our future doesn't come when we say, I need a vision for my future. I need to know the kind of hole I'm supposed to drill with my life, but rather when you're focused on your relation, you think about that, study that, prepare for that, but it's actually when, if you want divine insight, it's when you're focused on your relationship with God that all of a sudden into your spirit will come spirit-revealed thoughts about your future. So uh, that's why we've been talking about what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1.17, we're told that Paul asked God to give the Ephesians spiritual wisdom and insight 
so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. The idea is that when we grow in our knowledge of God, that's when he's able to tell us what's on his mind. So the focus, if you want divine insight, is yeah, focus on your need for insight, but if you want divine insight, focus on the person who can tell you about the things he's prepared for you that are so great, human eyes can't see it, human ears can't hear it, human minds can't conceive it, but it can be seen, heard, and conceived in your spirit. So ask God to give you spiritual wisdom and insight. I've been praying this over my own life in recent weeks so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the wonderful future he has promised to those he has called. So when you focus on your relationship with God, focus on scripture, focus on prayer, focus on fellowship, listen to great teaching, do the things that you know you need to do to stimulate the life of the spirit, that's when, boom, all of a sudden your heart is flooded with light and you see the wonderful future that God has called for you. Here's the second no. I'm talking fast. I have a lot to say today and want to say it in a timely way. Here's the second thing. Know that you must then go to work to actualize vision. Now here's a deal that I've discovered with a lot of people who hear the kind of things I'm saying and, 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 and get very spiritualistic about these things, which we need to. But we also have to understand that just because God gives us divine insight about our future, it doesn't mean that we don't have to go to work cooperating with him to make it happen. And I know a lot of people, Christians, who believe they have some sense of what their future is going to be about, but don't have the discipline to actually strategically work towards that future. Now that we have insight, I mean, this is obvious, I know, but I feel like I need to say it anyway. Now that we have insight about our future, we need an actionable plan. Now that we see the hole that we want to we want to drill. Now we have to think about how do you actually build the thing that can make that happen. And so whether this is the nonprofit you lead or whether this is uh, how you're, the insight you have about writing a book or, or um, uh, if this is, is, is about uh, the, the organization you're leading or the ministry you want to build, now you have to have an actionable plan. God actually wants us to engage our will and our minds in order to cooperate with him to bring the preferred future he has for us to pass. So, you know, we need a strategic plan that, that becomes actionable. A, a strategic plan involves a statement of mission, vision, core values, prioritized strategic objectives, goals that are connected to a timeline, and a plan to monitor and measure results. It is an actionable plan. It guides the actions that should be taken to achieve specific outcomes in the future. Now that you have a picture of your future, become an expert on your future and go after it. James said that faith without action is dead. And then in a more earthy way, Walter Isaacson said in a book I read recently, vision without execution is hallucination. It's not enough to have vision. Now you've got to get busy and getting busy will involve, this is the way God designed us, using the mind God gave you, using the skills God's giving you, the gifts God's given you. Now you have to go to work. You don't just get to stay in this ethereal, I have divine insight place. Get busy. Uh, one of the most famous visions in scripture 
a vision that has defined, literally defined, obviously defined the history of the world was a vision that the apostle Paul received called uh, the Macedonian call. Paul, the apostle, was on one of his missionary journeys and he was in a place called Troas in uh, what is now modern day Turkey. And uh, he, he receives a vision where he knows that God's calling him to take the gospel to Europe. The good news about Jesus had never been preached in Europe. And this is the first time that it happens. And here's what happens. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. This was foresight. This was divine revelation. This was a vision from God. Now notice there's not a whole lot of detail here. What Paul knows is he's supposed to go to Macedonia, which was just across the Aegean Sea. Uh, Macedonia, that, at that time, what was called Macedonia, we would call Northern Greece now. He's supposed to go into Macedonia and he's supposed to preach the gospel. That's all he knows. Now this is what happens. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. God doesn't supernaturally transport them there and give them an instruction manual as to what to do. They get ready at once, they take action, they figure out concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, which is an island in the Aegean Sea, and they stayed there the night, and then the next day they went on to Neapolis, which is on the coast of northern Greece. From there, notice, they didn't stay in Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now in this, uh, there's, there's, I've never actually talked about this before. I was, I was in Neapolis in November, and Neapolis on, on, on the coast of, of uh, northern Greece is this beautiful seaside village. It's the kind of place that if you're fortunate, God would call you to spend the rest of your life. And it just, what caused me to think about this is I thought, why didn't, here Paul's been called to preach the gospel in, 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 in this part of the world. Why didn't he just start preaching the gospel the first place he got off the boat? Because I would have stayed here. But instead, even though this wasn't specifically a part of the what the vision God gave him, Paul now thinks strategically. Neapolis was a port, but not a strategic place. He goes to Philippi, which was a Roman colony, incredibly important in the first century. The, the road from Rome literally traveled through Philippi. The road is still part of it exists. I saw it. And it was the leading city in the region. The point is he had a vision, but now he gets strategic. And he starts to work that vision out in the realities of life. He preaches the gospel in Philippi. He meets a, a businesswoman named Lydia. Uh, he baptizes Lydia. Lydia becomes the first Christian convert in all of Europe. And literally, this vision to go to Macedonia has changed the world. The vision was a life-defining moment. But then Paul had to give legs to the vision by acting strategically and actually doing what was necessary to bring it to pass. 
And this is what I've learned. I've learned that having the vision is just the first thing. Now, God wants to engage our minds and our wills. Now, that doesn't mean that we're on our own, as I'll say here in a moment, because he'll work in our lives on a day-to-day basis to help us. But don't be waiting for a specific instruction manual to tell you everything to do. See the vision, get up, and go after it, and be smart about it already, okay? All right, here's the third no. Actually, God did give you a brain, okay? So some people are too holy to act like they should use it. Well, I'm too spiritual to think, too spiritual to study, to research, to to strategic plan. No, I'm just gonna, well, no time for this. Here's the third thing. Know that God is working with you to actualize his vision for your life. Now, again, there's a, there's a paradoxical nature to all of this. Here, here's a way I love to describe this. We live in the middle voice. In grammar, there's an active voice, a middle voice, and a passive voice. The active voice means that the subject is doing all the doing. The passive voice means that all the doing is being done to the subject. The middle voice is participatory, doing, being done to. Do you understand? And we live in our relationship with God in the middle voice. We're we're cooperating. This is why I like to say we are partners in, in the fulfillment of our destiny. We're cooperating with God. We're listening, we're acting, we're praying, we're doing our best. Sometimes we don't know exactly what to do and, 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 and we just take the next best step we know to do and we do it in a way that's honoring God and asking us for his help. And then as we're doing this, this participatory thing, God does show up and we have to believe that he's working through us. Philippians 2.13, God is working working in you to help you want to do and be able to do what pleases him. Now, part of the promise of this whole 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 10 thing, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind, that whole thing you've heard me talk about so much, not just this week, but over the years. It's one of, it's a very important concept to me. Uh, One of the things that's important to know is, is that before that passage, it says, as it is written, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has conceived. The reason it says as it is written is because this is being extracted from the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. By the way, when you're reading the New Testament and you see a reference made to something that was written in the Old Testament, go to the Old Testament to get a sense of the larger context of what's being said in the New Testament. But nonetheless, here's what's written in Isaiah 64. Hear this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you since ancient times. And now, now this is the as it is written in 1 Corinthians 2 part. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Okay, so we should be able to imply that if we see a vision that can only be seen through divine revelation, if we receive insight about our future, that God also will act on our behalf to help make what he's put in our hearts come to pass. 
That doesn't mean he's going to give you a detailed instruction manual, but he's at work in you, causing you to want to do and to do what pleases him. You should get up every day carefully, but confidently honoring God and expect that he is at work in the decisions that you're making, in the plans that you're writing, in the execution that you're moving forward, and so on. And then I'll say this, and I'll move on to my last point where I'm going to spend a, a, a Uh, the next 15 or so minutes. And that is to say, this is why, and I'm planning to teach about this during the Lenten season, this is why I love the definition of prayer that goes like this. It's, I saw something like this somewhere else, but I've kind of expanded it in my own language. I like to say that prayer is communication between us and God about what we are thinking, doing, and planning to do together. You look all the way back in the garden, all the way through time, this is a prayer that works. I mean, this is a definition that works for prayer. Prayer is talking with God about what we, who's we? God and us, and all of us, are thinking, doing, and planning to do together. That's what my prayer time looks like a lot of the time in the morning. God, this is what I feel called to do. This is what I need. In, give me wisdom and insight and the knowledge of you so that my heart can be flooded with light and so that I can see the future you've called me to. Here's what I'm thinking about doing today. Help me to think about this. What do you think? I'm listening. I'm praying. I'm talking. I'm listening. What am I listening? With my physical ear? No, but, but I'm listening. I'm, you learn when you're in relationship with God and you're in his word and you're in fellowship with other believers. You learn how to hear things at the level where you really hear things that, 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 and receive spiritual wisdom and insight. All right, here's the fourth note. It's to know that we are with you. So to reframe, you can receive insight. That's the first no. The second one is um, you then have to go to work to actualize the vision. Thirdly, you're not alone. God will help you. But it doesn't mean he's going to, you know, tell you what color tie to put on every morning. Made you to be able to do that, okay? And four, I wish I had three hours to teach some of this stuff today. But anyway, you're glad I don't. I wish I did, but oh well. And fourth, here's the fourth thing. Not only is God with you, but we're with you. All right. So God designed our lives so that our futures are inextricably linked to our relationships with one another. Now, you might remember if you've been here the last couple of weeks or watched online, that uh, I've been talking about the proper context for the 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 10 thing. The 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 10 thing, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, no mind is conceived, but God has revealed it to your spirit. That was written in, in a much larger context in the first few chapters of the, of the letter to the Corinthians. That what Paul's actually dealing with in writing to the letters of Corinthians were breakdowns in the relationships of the people in that local church with each other. And he's writing to tell them that they need to get on the same page in terms of their common vision. They need to agree with one another. They're arguing with each other about all kinds of things. They've got issues about which leader they're following. And, and this gets manifest in a bunch of other things. But that's fundamentally the problem was a lack of unified vision 
in that local church. And what Paul says is, uh, the, the, the 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 10 thing is followed by 1 Corinthians 3, 1, where Paul says, now I'd like to talk to you about these deep things, the stuff we're talking about today, these things that God has prepared for you, but I can't talk to you about it because you're so messed up in your relationships with each other. He says, I can't even talk to you about it. You're a bunch of babies. That's what he says, he calls them infants. So you're a bunch of babies, he says, and so I'd like to feed you meat, but I can't feed you meat, I have to give you milk. You're quarreling, you're acting silly. And so I talked last week about how when there's dissonance in our relationships with one another, it limits our ability to hear God's vision as individuals. But on the other side, when we're united with other people, heading in the same direction, and we're a part of a common vision, then it unleashes vision in our own lives. And so we talked last week about how part of Paul dealt with this was to tell them that they were members of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, and that each of them were a part of it. And he, he, he talked to them about how that each of them were a body part, that they were a, literally, the Greek is, they were a limb on the body. And that in order for them to be what they were made to be, they had to be connected to everyone else. And for everyone else, for the church itself to be what it needed to be, everybody needed to be connected to each other. Okay, now, so, so last week I talked quite so, at some, quite some length about what it means to be the body of Christ and for us each to be members of it. Today, I want to introduce another metaphor, probably my favorite metaphor, to discuss the relationships that are to occur in a church. And Paul is particularly writing to the Corinthians about what's going on in their local church. And, and, and that metaphor is the metaphor of family. Scripture teaches that we are each members of the family of God, and I want to show you how important familiar relationships are to actualizing God's vision for our lives. So let me be quick in the first part of this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll dig into some things I, and close with some things I hope that you'll find interesting and it might be a little different than, 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 than something you may have heard before. First of all, know how important spiritual family is to God. Hebrews chapter 2 is a great example of this. It's where the writer to the first century Jewish Christians said, God is the one who made all things and all things are for his glory. He wanted to have many children share his glory. God wants a lot of kids, essentially is what he's saying. And then uh, Ephesians 1 picks up the idea beautifully. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Please understand that God wants to have a lot of kids, and he sent Jesus to do what needed to be done so that, so that we could be adopted into God's family, all right? It is essential to practice what it means to be a member of a spiritual family in order to become fully developed as children of God. I'm, a, I'm gonna fundamentally say two things in the rest of my time. Now, I'll say a lot of other things to make the points, but here are the two things now I wanna say. I wanna say, first of all, it is God-designed our lives in a way where in order for us to be fully developed as children in God's family, that we have to learn and intentionalize what it means to be a part of the family. And secondly, I'm gonna talk about how that being a part of the family becomes foundational for us being launched into this 
divine revelation that God wants to give us about our lives, okay? First of all, let's talk about our development or our spiritual formation. Paul said to Timothy, know how to live in the family of God. That family is the church of the living God. Why is this idea of family important to our development? Well, it could be said many ways, but here's one way. Perhaps you're familiar with the rare but documented, well-documented cases of feral children. F-E-R-A-L, feral children. A feral child is, and again, this is very rare, but it, 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 it has happened and been well documented. A feral children is a child that somehow gets, as a, as a baby, is left in the wild and grows up outside of relationships with a family or with other human beings. And when they find these children, having to whatever age they've grown to, they say that it would be difficult to describe them as human. And the reason why is because human beings can only become fully human in relationship to other human beings. We are developed in our personhood. We're, we're, you could go to, you know, there are some animals that are born and within, within an hour, they're kind of fundamentally functioning as that animal. I'm not going to get into the science of it, but check it out. But human beings aren't that way. Human beings, in order to learn to be human, learn to be human in relationship to others, and the primary place that happens, of course, is in the family. We are developed in the family. We cannot become fully human outside of the family. Now, the point I want to make to you is we cannot be fully developed as children of God outside of the family relationship that God intended to happen in the church. I use the word spiritual formation. It's a beautiful word. The great Dallas Willard said, Spiritual formation for the Christian basically refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. He also says, our life and how we find the world now and in the future is almost totally a simple result of what we have become in the depths of our being, in our spirit, will, or heart. From there, we see our world and interpret reality. From there, we make our choices, break forth into action, try to change our world. We live from our depths, most of which we do not understand. Spiritual formation has to do with the development of the interior of our lives, essentially spirit, soul, mind. The development of that does not happen when we live in isolation from others, but rather when we live in relationship with others. This is how God designed for children to be developed. So, so you know, I love the prayer where Paul prays to the church, uh, for the church in, in Galatia, and he says, my dear children, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How is Christ formed in us? How are we fully developed? We were meant to be fully developed in community. Uh, the great pastor, author, 
translator of scripture, Eugene Peterson, translator of the message, which is such a popular uh, translation of, of, of the Bible. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote in a, in, a, in a book about his life that... Um, that he, he is a, he's, an, he's a person who's somewhat of an isolationist. He doesn't necessarily like being around people, and he talked about how he didn't really like being very close to members of his congregation. He shouldn't have said that as a pastor, but he said it after he solved the problem, okay? Then, then, then he wrote, but he, he said, but I soon found that my preferences were honored by neither scripture nor Jesus. Finally, there was no getting around it. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. Jesus was very clear about the importance of spiritual family and, and being intentional about it. There's a famous story in the Gospel of Mark, uh, I think it may be in some of the other synoptic Gospels, where Jesus is in a house and he's teaching and he's surrounded by people and his mother, Mary, obviously, showed up with some of his brothers, and I don't remember if some of his sisters are in this text or not, and, and they couldn't get in the house, and they sent someone in to interrupt the teaching of Jesus and to tell him that his mother and brothers were outside. And this is what Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have a commitment to his biological family, of course. If you know me at all, you know how passionately committed I am to my wife, to my children, to my parents. There's, there's nothing more important in the world, obviously. But I'm, but, and Jesus was committed to his mother and brothers and sisters as well. Now, some of you might be confused because you grew up thinking Mary didn't have any other children. That's a subject for another day. But though Mary was a virgin who conceived by the Holy Spirit and gave birth to Jesus, she also then, she was married to Joseph and they had other children, okay? In the normal way people have children. And Jesus had brothers and sisters. He, he was their half brother and sister because his God was the father, but, uh, uh, or because God was the father, but he had brothers and sisters. Uh, but so Jesus, the point is he, he makes the point that, and at that time, his brothers and sisters were not supportive of his ministry that, which I'll talk about in a moment, that, that his brothers and sisters were not only his biological family, but those who were on the same path he was on, if you please. Those who shared the same belief. Those who were going in the same direction. He was very clear to identify his spiritual family. Guys, it's in that spiritual family where we look around and we say, who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? And we look around and we say, it's the people who are believing the same way I am. It's the people who are on the same path I'm in. Hopefully our biological family is a part of that family too. But whether it is or not, we have a spiritual family as well as a biological family and it's in the spiritual family where we are developed as children of God. But not only are we developed as children of God, it's also in the spiritual family 
where we find what we need to help our God-given vision come to pass. When we are meaningfully connected to spiritual family, we find a community of people who believe in us and with us and support us in actualizing God's dreams for our lives. Let me show you how this was manifest in the life of Jesus. This is mind-blowing. If you've never heard this before, uh, this is mind-boggling. When G, I mentioned how that, that his brothers, uh, at least, were not supportive of him early in his ministry. Now, his brothers ended up coming to faith later. James, his half-brother, ended up becoming the bishop of the church in Jerusalem and wrote the letter called James in the New Testament and so on. Uh, uh, but, but early in his ministry, his brothers weren't supportive. In fact, John chapter 7, verse 5 says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. If you'll read all of John 7, which I encourage you to do, Jesus, his brothers were actually trying to set him up to be either arrested or assassinated because they thought he'd gone off the rails. They thought he was crazy. They didn't believe in him. You say, well, did it matter to Jesus whether or not his brothers believed in him? It did. There's this another story in, in the Gospel of Matthew that you would be familiar with because a famous phrase came from it where it says that coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, aren't all his sisters with us? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is without honor except a, a, a prophet is without honor in his own country. This translation says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So Jesus is in his hometown and he's with his earthly brothers and sisters and they didn't believe in him, and Jesus could not do many miracles because of their lack of faith. Now, I didn't make that up, did I? I just read it, you saw it on the screen. It's pretty obvious, okay? You might have heard it before, but it's pretty obvious. Jesus couldn't fully do what he came to do because he was surrounded by people who didn't believe in him. No wonder Jesus said, you know what? I'm gonna deal with my family later, but right now, I need some brothers and sisters who will believe in me, who will believe with me, who will support me in what I'm doing, and he got very intentional about that. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus went up on a mountainside early in his ministry, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. So here he is. He has this call, obviously. He has this mission. It's going to be a difficult mission. His brothers and sisters, are, I don't know about his sisters, it doesn't say that explicitly. At least his brothers are saying, we don't believe in you. What do you mean? You're gonna do what? And it keeps him from fully functioning the way he's supposed to funny function, even as the son of God. And so what does he say? He said, I gotta find some people who wanna be with me and who I wanna be with and who will do life with me. It is a profound thing to consider. Again, later on, 
his brothers and sisters came to faith and became a part of what he was doing. But there was a season where Jesus needed to surround himself with people who were with him. It's with this kind of thing in mind that 27 years ago, now I'm going someplace very practical with this. 27 years ago, we developed what we call life groups at the Life Christian Church. Life, whenever you see the word life in front of the word group or teams, and you see the word capitalized, it is an acronym which means life in a family environment. I knew very early in my pastorate that in order for people to become everything God had called them to be, that we needed to have expressions of spiritual family. And though we feel that to some degree in a room like this with hundreds of people, the fact is there are too many of us, you know, Jesus called a small group around him of 12 guys and those 12, though he also functioned in crowds, those 12 guys were the people that he really did life with over those next three and a, three and a half years of his ministry. And so it is that we have tried to not just theorize about the need for spiritual family, but to create places where there's a possibility for that to actually happen, where people can intentionalize what it means to be a part of a spiritual family. Why is that important, Pastor? I mean, why, why are we promoting life groups? Let's get real clear about something. You know what life groups does for us organizationally, at least on a level where you can measure it? Not anything. We don't receive offerings in life groups. We don't receive tithes in life groups. We don't, you know, that, 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 that's, that, that's, in fact, they cost us money. Why do we care about life groups? Because we care about you. And our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread his love in ever-widening circles. And I know that you can't be, according to everything I understand from scripture and from a lifetime of experience, you cannot be fully developed as to what it means to be a child of God outside of a sense of connection to others as spiritual family. And I also know that if God's given you a vision for your future, that that vision for your future can only fully be unleashed with people who believe in you and with you and support you and who'll pray for you and encourage you and champion you and be there when you have setbacks. And that's why we have life groups. It's because we love the people of this church. And so I think that's all I'm gonna say today. I hope you're not disappointed, <laughs> but uh, here are the four no's. Know that you can have insight. Secondly, Know that when you get insight, you have to go to work to actualize it. Thirdly, know that God's gonna be with you. And fourthly, know that if you'll let us, we're gonna be there with you. Helping you become everything God made you to be because we can do this together in a way we can never do on our own. Uh, Christian's gonna come and make some closing comments and I'm gonna say the benediction. Now you've got the